Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, you've reached Conundrum Press and the home of Andy Brown. Christiane. Angus. Silas. Milo. When you call Christy Ann Conlin's house, the answering machine message you get, the one you just heard, it has not changed in over eight years. For Christy Ann, this message is almost an heirloom, a reminder of how quickly time has passed and what family means. Back in the spring, on Mother's Day, Christy Ann was given the ultimate reminder of this. It started out the same as every Mother's Day. So I come down and at the bottom of the stairs, that's where the dining room is. And there were flowers laid out and um, the cards were beautiful. And But what was bizarre was there was this big formal manila business envelope. So I opened it up and as soon as I pulled it out, I could immediately tell it was like a court document. It looked like a court order. Close, but not quite. And then... Immediately, I saw it was adoption papers. And I, um, I, you know, I didn't really know what to say. And I'm not often at a loss for words. And um, we've talked about this for a long time, but there's just never time. There's three kids. We're a sandwich generation. And um, in the middle of that, Andy found the time to, to go to our lawyer to get the paperwork done up. And um, Andy had a copy to show me as as a surprise. And I was very surprised. Um. She was surprised. But surprising her with the papers was an idea her family had been planning for a while. The kids were really happy. I, I think they thought it was funny that I was crying. You know, it just felt like we we've come full circle. Or a better way to describe it is full labyrinth where our path has curled closer to another loop traveled before and Andy talked to the kids ahead of time he spoke to each one of them privately just to explain why we wanted to do it and what it meant and um, you know he said it was funny that the kids were just like oh yeah that's great but it didn't it didn't mean nearly as much to them the formality of it, because they already feel emotionally and on a gut level that I'm their mother and I'm always there for them and this is their family and so it was lovely. So I sat there with all of the flowers and the beautiful gifts and the beautiful boys and my wonderful husband and I sat there bawling, holding the adoption papers and it was, um, it was the, the sweetest thing. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. They say you can't choose your family, but sometimes you kind of do. You have to. Christiane Conlin is a writer. 
You may have read her novels Heave, The Memento, and most recently, The Speed of Mercy, which follows the long hidden stories of two families. Today's episode is also about two families, who are now one. For the past eight years, Christy Ann Conlin has been living a life that used to, in part, belong to someone else, her husband Andy's first wife, Meg Sercom. Meg died of cancer at the age of 43. Now, Christy Ann is married to Meg's husband, lives in Meg's house, has adopted Meg's kids who she loves, and has inherited Meg's three sisters. When it comes to blending families, the first thought is often the kids. And for Christy Ann, her son and her husband's two boys, now hers too, are of course front of mind. But it was the surprising relationship with the rest of Meg's family, collectively referred to as the Circums, and her unexpected relationship with Meg herself that has Christy Ann asking questions about the meaning of family and how to, if not fill someone else's shoes, walk beside them. Christy Ann Conlin, We'll take it from here. I was born and raised in seaside Nova Scotia. I left when I was 18, and I traveled all over the world. And I'm not quite sure how, but somehow I became a writer. And as she does for so many of us, the Atlantic Ocean called me home. But life didn't unfold as I thought it would. I had a baby, and then a catastrophic relationship breakdown. So there I was, a single parent, driving a beater. I mean, you should have seen this car. And I was also helping my mother, who was losing her vision rapidly. And I was helping her take care of my father, who had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So it was in the midst of all of this, I was set up on a blind date. And that is how I met Andy Brown. It really felt like a miracle. He was a single parent and he was working in publishing in the middle of nowhere (laughs) with two young sons. And we slowly wove our lives together. And then he surprised me. He proposed. And we finally, we got married. And after that, Silas and I moved into the house with Andy and his boys. Their names are Angus and Milo. And we moved into the same house that he and Meg had shared. Andy actually didn't tell me a lot about Meg. He just told me the basics, that she loved Nova Scotia, she loved the ocean, She was fanatical about nature and deeply passionate about the arts, especially music and writing. But what she loved more than anything was her children and her family. But that's really, that's all he really told me. And at the very beginning, it seemed impossible to me that I was going to be able to find my way and find my own space in this new family. There's this old cliche that marrying a widower never goes well. There's so many expectations. There's too many memories. How can it possibly, how can it possibly work when there's so much past behind them? 
And I felt so much anxiety about it. And then, of course, Andy introduced me to his mother-in-law, Granny. And then not one, not two, but three sisters-in-law. And each of them, they have a personality the size of Texas. Libby is the oldest. She's an artist and a musician. The middle sister is Kate, and she's a teacher. And the youngest sister, Jillian, um, who works in immigration law. It's been about nine years since we first met. And I really have had this strong desire to speak with the sisters about our unusual family. Because after all this time, I wonder how they really feel about me. I first got to know Jill when I stayed with her at the family cottage, Cross Trees, where she lives. On a spring evening with the waves crashing on the beach, Jill and I went for a sunset walk. The first thing we talked about was how funny and confusing it still is to even describe our relationship. Interview with Jill, my lovely outlaw, inherited sister-in-law, sister in outlaw. That's an interesting. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it. Um, I always say sister-in-law. I, I because it's so much simpler. I always wanted sisters, and yet I was lodged in the middle of two brothers. But here was life throwing me a wild card. Three exuberant sisters who seemed to have tumbled right out of a Jane Austen novel. And yet, you know, I was terrified they would resent me as a living symbol of Meg's tragic death and that they would exclude me. How would I manage all of this? Plus my own parents and extended family, not to mention Andy and I, trying to build a core family unit with Angus, Milo and Silas. The cliche of fairy tales, it's not the happily ever after. It's this idea that the new mother just never, ever fits in. Jill's anxiety started before I even showed up, right after Meg died. I would say I had two fears when Andy was on his own, that he would, A, move to British Columbia, because that's where he's from. And really, Nova Scotia was was Meg, right? That's why he came here. And so in my mind, it wouldn't have been unreasonable for him to move to British Columbia, which is an awfully far way away and would have completely changed my relationship to my nephews. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have been as close to them. I wouldn't have seen them grow up as much. And then the other thought in my mind was that if he meets somebody else, they don't necessarily want us along in the package, right? And which would be not unreasonable. I don't think that somebody coming into a new relationship would want to kind of build their own thing, you know, with Andy and the boys and not be encumbered by the in-laws. It would be sad, right? What Jill didn't realize is that Meg had already thought of this. Andy told me that the one thing Meg wanted that was so important to her was that the boys grew up in Nova Scotia 
And that's why he said it was almost like a miracle meeting me because I think I said right at the beginning, you know, I'm never leaving Nova Scotia before I knew any of that. <laughs> well, that's why you guys, are, that's what happened. <laughs> Milo and Angus did not have much time with their mother. Milo has a few memories. He was five when she died. Angus was only two and he just doesn't remember her. Silas is my son from a previous relationship. He happily spends time in our home and in his home with his dad and his stepmother, who live nearby. When Andy and I got together, I worried that my presence would remind Milo and Angus that their mother was gone. Sometimes I think Silas was the bridge for all of us. Meg's family embraced him from the get-go, and the children bonded immediately. I refer to the three of them together as winking, blinking, and nod. Well, I thought I was blinking. I'm not. Am I oh, winking? oh, <laughs> I yeah. Blinking. No, blinking, winking, and nod. You're blinking, and and Catherine Collins calls you Huey, Dewey, and Louie. I, I call being Dewey. As long as I'm Dewey, I'm Dewey. I need to. No, I am okay, always yeah. gonna be. Okay. That makes me Donald. They now consider each other blood brothers. Angus says he doesn't remember a time in his life without me and Silas in it. Children move through grief very quickly, and they relish the memories they have. But they also hurtle into the future, hungry for life and vitality. And what's come to really surprise me is that Meg's family, the Circums, seem to take this approach to grief and life. And me, People will say to me, oh, it must be so tense when you're with Andy's first wife's family. And I'm like, no, it's like... It's the opposite, <laughs> it's the opposite of tense. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no, they're like so welcoming. And it makes me think a lot about grief, like the way adults uh, navigate grief. Sadness, the, the sadness is still there, but, but grief doesn't need to be bitter. It doesn't need to be... A negative. It's sad and it often hurts. And I mean, I think that when you've lost someone who's close to you, you always feel that that loss and what have I missed? But there's nothing to be served by being angry or bitter about it. Jill is the kind of person who doesn't dwell on what could have been. She's focused now on her relationship with the boys and with Andy and with me. My life with my children and inherited in-laws shows me that joy and sadness can coexist alongside Meg's spirit. It's why I've never felt overshadowed by Meg. It's much more of her as an occasional shadow at my side, a presence I sometimes sense. The first time I found a purple iris growing valiantly in the waist-high weeds outside the house. I felt like she was there in the garden. Meg, as my invisible friend, if you will. When someone dies, they're still there, right? Everything that they were and that they've brought to you is still exists. And so even though one of my sisters isn't here anymore everything that she's brought to me is still there so the person the person doesn't go away 
and of course she's in she's in the boys and she would be in Andy to a certain extent because she was his partner so you would feel that right because you you've come into a world where where she was very present and and really i mean if she was alive and you had become friends with her you know you would have had a a specific relationship with her and in in many ways what you're saying is you you built that relationship so that your relationship with her or her her memory is is your own it means so much to me that Jill completely understands this one guiding principle for me has been what i would have wanted in her situation a loving family for my children and a living breathing mother andy told me that meg didn't want the children to forget her but she knew because they were so young they probably would this saddens me and it's something i've never forgotten that is normally up there on the shelf that is our mom when the kids got a bit older i asked andy for photos of meg at different stages in her life For me, it's really important the boys see the richness of her life through images as well as the family stories. There is a wonderful photo of Meg planting trees long before motherhood and terminal cancer. This free spirit of a young woman deep in the woods. This this picture was your mommy's favorite picture of herself. Uh-huh. Do you know why? Because there's a rainbow. Well, there's a rainbow, but she's totally disheveled living in the bush. This is when she's tree planting and she mm-hmm. did that for 12 years and that was like the best time of her of her life living in a bush like she lived literally in a bush. This is before yes. she knew yes. daddy Absolutely. when she was very young. Yeah. It's you know her swinging youth. Silas too. Uh, uh the photo is old and green. It's from quite a it's while ago. It looks like someone photo. just snapped it and it's a bit faded. How about this photo? It's that? a picture of the circums mm-hmm. on Ice. the bay in front of Crossstreet. The whole caboodle, I think. Angus, can you tell me who's who's in the picture? Um, so there's Granny, uh, then there's Mommy, and then there's Auntie Lib, then there's, there's Auntie Kate, yeah. then there's Auntie Jill. Yeah, at Crossstreet in the winter. I grew up on the mighty Bay of Fundy. The beloved Circum Cottage, Cross Trees, also sits on the Atlantic, but on the south shore of Nova Scotia, a completely different geography for me. This is Meg's heartland. It's here Meg played as a child, swam in the sea, sailed on the ocean, paddled on tidal rivers. Where Meg gathered in the evening and sang campfire songs with her sisters and cousins and her friends. I had a lot of anxiety about this sacred place. That here, more than anywhere, I was I was just going to be an outsider. But when I came to stay with Jill to work on my novel, I understood that this was my true initiation into the family. And here, Meg is alive in spirit in the soaring pines and the ocean breezes. Cross Trees is a family cottage and so its policy is to have doors open 
And because I'm the person living there, I I don't feel it an obligation. I feel like that's that's what the place is. It's it's an open door. Meg came here to the seaside as a child, as a young woman, as a new mother, as a dying mother. It's here where she loved to be most of all. It wasn't until I began spending time writing at Cross Trees that Meg's presence and my sense of who she was fully formed. It's hard to explain. Let's consider the ocean. When you swim in the ocean, you know on some subconscious level that the oceans of the world are all connected. That's how it was swimming at Cross Trees. Sometimes I would be aware that I swam and walked exactly where Meg had before me. But many times I was just present in the hypnotic beauty of that forest which meets the beach and the sea. I remember walking barefoot over the pine needles on a warm, starry night, listening to the waves on the beach and the wind in the trees. I was by myself in the woods, feeling like a child and a mother all at the same time. This is my own private ritual, walking in the woods by the sea with Meg and watching the moonbeams dazzle on the waves. She wanted the kids to have another mother, you know, and she wanted Andy to have another wife because she knew that would be the best thing for them. I think she would be happy, you know, that she entrusted her kids to you. <laughs> I just feel so fortunate. Um, I mean, I feel like, like just sitting here in the woods, I feel like her big hearted spirit, I think, I, I feel like I inherited the results of that. <laughs> There's a lot of love. There's and a lot of love. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. My friendship with Jill shows me again and again how mercy rises out of an understanding that life is just full of wild cards, hurts, devastations, as well as beautiful surprises. Andy didn't talk about her a lot, which is why I knew he was through his grieving, right? He was open and, and ready to move on. But it was, he talked about her love of Nova Scotia and her love of the ocean. And those things were so important to me. And those core values were what I felt united me with her. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a funny, shadowy paradigm when you sort of have a, a relationship with someone who isn't here, who you never knew, and you're piecing together. Yeah, and it would be very, I mean, completely different for you because you didn't know her at all. Whereas I have, I know her and I know you, so, so I have the two of you side by side. That's really lovely to hear you say that because, you know, sometimes I, I worry when I'm around that um, even though everyone is so kind and accepting and everyone has always really included me, but sometimes I worry that when I'm around, it reminds everybody that Meg isn't here anymore. 
I guess that's something I have, haven't ever said to you before. <laughs> no, I don't. It doesn't remind me that Meg's not here. I think I, I'm more reminded that Meg's not here when I'm alone. And I, I miss her immensely. But, but when I see the family as a family, I don't see a gaping hole. Like, I just see things have shifted around. So your presence certainly doesn't, doesn't remind me of, of the fact that she's not here. No, I would say probably maybe even on the contrary. I mean, it, it, it shows me a lovely family dynamic. I mean, with you and Andy and the, and the boys and, and, you know, Silas as well. It's like an extra, <laughs> an extra nephew, <laughs> which I never knew I was going to have. You know, things happen that are unexpected and we think life is going to turn out a certain way and then it doesn't. And... uh it's not always a bad thing. What Jill has confided in me is a lesson in how life brings us a tapestry of experiences and feelings. They coexist, the sorrow and the joy. And at the same time, this doesn't diminish the sadness of Meg's death. Yeah, I kind of feel like the idea of someone dying and someone dying young and leaving her children behind it's such a profound tragedy. And it's hard to think that there can be joy and happiness or a new family formation the way you've described. But what I, I loved about meeting all of you and the way everyone accepted me and always included me in everything and made me feel so welcome is just this openness to the unexpected. But you made it easy for us too. I feel really happy about for Andy and the boys and for you and Silas because I think you are a lovely family unit and, um, you know, that makes it easy, right? AC here. Coming up, the sister Christy Ann knows the least. Kate. That's next. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. The big yellow house and the big yellow house backyard and grounds. Um, interview with Kate Sercom. Along with cross trees, the other place I feel makes spirit is in our home, the big yellow house. This is a house she and Andy bought when they lived in Montreal, before she was sick, when Nova Scotia called her home. It's a rambling house built in the late 1790s, and it's perched on a cliff above a pond. It was sparsely furnished with secondhand furniture and a few paintings on the walls. 
Andy and Meg had bought the house a year before she was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer. Their plan was to rent it out until they could relocate to the East Coast. But the terminal diagnosis changed all of that. And after she died, Andy was overwhelmed by work and single parenting. He left things exactly as they had been. In the dining room, there was a buffet Meg got when her parents downsized, along with a few old pieces of family china and silver. When I moved in, I opened the felt-lined silverware drawers, looking for a space to put my things. Behind two silver serving spoons was a plastic bag containing Meg's cancer medication, a few medical reports, an unfilled prescription, and sadly, a sheet listing her next chemo appointment. In that drawer, I found a very sick woman at the end of her life. I had a private weep into that drawer. What hit me full on was the deep sorrow she must have felt about leaving her children behind. While Meg did not have time to make her mark on the house or the grounds, she loved what it symbolized. And if there is anyone who understands that love, it's Kate, beloved Auntie Kate to the kids. She helped us more than anyone when we first wove our families together. But Kate is still the sister I know the least. There was just never time. When Andy and I first got married, both my father and Grampy Circum were very ill with Alzheimer's disease. It was an intense period. Jill and I became friends so quickly and it was easy to ask her about how they feel with me and the family. But I feel a lot more anxiety speaking with Kate about this. We rarely have time alone together to chat. So it's a pleasure now to meet with her here and wander by the lupins and lavender. This wall that we're looking at that is the foundation of an old barn, a stone, uh, a field stone wall, is an ideal location for some kind of garden. So gardeners are sort of hopeful people who like to dream, and I think Meg was no different. And so we would think about what you could do with this walled garden. I know in my mind it sort of reminds me of the secret garden, but I think it may have been something different for Meg. But definitely I would say this is what she imagined it would be okay so we'll go down here these are what we call the pink chairs of contemplation down this treacherous path and i should say that this is like paradise right here we're going down a path towards a pond that is covered with lily pads there's some a wild apple tree in bloom the wild pear all in bloom. There's an old willow branch falling into the water and there is a turtle on top of the branch right there. And ducks and birds calling it's pretty paradisical. It's such a beautiful day that Kate and I decide to walk down the woodland path by the pond, the reflecting pond, if you will. It's here we both relax and really talk. I know you were really involved in in helping Andy with the kids. 
But I'm just wondering what that experience is like to have somebody arrive. I mean, because you were really involved. Like, I know you really tried to step up and fill the the shoes of, like, suddenly there's no maternal presence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, definitely there's there was a little jealousy, you know, that 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 role that was important to me was going to be taken over by someone else. But I'm wise enough to recognize that in myself and to know that that is just one of those animal feelings that people have. And that, you know, the rationally in every way, we were all very happy. I think back to one of the first times I met Kate. I was upstairs after a sleepless night when my dad was sick. I was barefoot in my nightie. Kate had arrived early to pick up the kids and she walked right into the house. I heard her on the stairs in her hiking boots. I remember thinking how awkward it was, me trying to find my place and Kate also having to find a different role in the family. It was a time of evolution for both of us. A few months before she died, Meg wrote a letter to Libby, the elder sister. Reading Meg's written words is the closest I've come to knowing who she was near the end, what the big yellow house and its glorious surroundings meant to her. I knew Kate had never read the letter. Kate was by Meg's side through the last year of her life. Kate and Andy, who worked valiantly to help Meg realize a few of her dreams for the property when she was ill. They also understood the dreams Meg had to let go of. I thought Kate might find the letter touching as we sat in those pink chairs of contemplation by the pond. Dear Libby, I'm reclining in the library while Kenny Sharp shapes our grotto or walled garden outside. He's filling in the hole in the ground and shoring up the rocks a little. I'm imagining the results. Were anyone around to put in the effort? It could be lovely. Yellow roses on the walls, a cherry tree or two, a little flagstone seating area, a view of the pond. But I feel as if these are my last days. I'll never see the finished space. I suspect some grass seeds will get strewn this fall. Andy will mow it and the weeds will grow up around the edges. It will look sort of tended to, vaguely so, like a tenement house yard. Andy has no interest in gardening. Anyway, I'm not being melodramatic. Looks like I have to have a whole brain radiation next week. Looks like the show is rapidly drawing to a close. Though there is always the hope the chemo really kicks in. It doesn't feel as if it is, or that another chemo drug works a little while, and maybe I'll have longer. But each treatment takes a little bit more of me away. These were Meg's words I was speaking. Both Kate and I kept it together, but it was a poignant moment. I decided to confide something I had never mentioned before to Kate. I had no idea how she would react. I sometimes think of her, I've, and I've told your sisters that as well, like sometimes like a shadow at my side. Hmm. And I sometimes wonder, is that because I'm so enmeshed with her family, with, hmm. with, the, her, with you guys? Mm-hmm. And 
just in the the, the whole terrain, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. so I feel in some ways that when you marry a widower, you end up having almost a private relationship with the the wife or the 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 person, right? The human yes. being who yes. who died. Yes, yes. That's very yes. separate. Yeah. Yeah, and the yeah. the two of you are the outsiders, mm-hmm. so a part of it, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. on the edge in a way mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in a positive mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's easy. To, I mean, it's I think it's a very difficult role to be like the stepmom, right? I mean, <laughs> there's all these stereotypes of the evil stepmother who comes in and it, it can become a, a negative thing and there can be bitterness and there can be jealousy and all those sorts of things. So I think it's, the difficulty is for you, somebody coming in and, and having, you know, worried that you're going to be judged or worried that, uh, you know, that you're supposed to fill some role that you don't even know what it was. Um, so you did it very well. I was surprised when Kate said this. I sometimes worried she was just tolerating me. Kate, like Jill, talked about moving forward without bitterness. So often the situation of marrying a widower or a widow is wrought with angst and resentment. But after our conversation, I felt reassured about our friendship. So, can you tell me your name? My name is Elizabeth Serkin. I also go by Libby or Lib in the family. And Auntie Lib. <laughs> if that's what you would like to call me. No, I'll stick with Libby. After my conversations with Kate and Jill, I went to speak with the eldest sister, Libby. Libby invites me to her music room where she teaches cello. Today I'm here for a specific reason. So can you tell me what we're going to listen to here <laughs> on the old-timey cassette? <laughs> I guess why we listen to it is that I am also, I should tell you, I'm also the keeper of the family records. I'm the one who makes notes on things and who can look up in my diary when something happened. And for a time, I actually had a very good cassette recorder. And I brought it with me. Uh, this was Christmas 2006. And my parents were selling the family home. Now, this was a big step. And the last night before we were all due to take our various airplanes and go back to where we were living, we all sat around the fire and we talked. And I just put the cassette recorder on sort of in the middle of us. So the sound is not always very good. And we just, as my mom would say, we just yacked. We just talked about this, that, and the other and nothing and had a lovely evening together around the fire. And so present would have been my parents, myself, and my three sisters. So all four sisters and their parents. Okay, well, let's take a listen. (laughs) Anyway, um, that is the story of... Or the piano's in the way. The piano was there and the... No, no, the piano. There was a bookcase there. The bookcase was there. Well, you took the bookcase out. The little bookcase. 
Okay, so I'm listening to this, and what's really interesting is I'm hearing, you know, the regular circum sort of giggly background, no, like, you know, comments and someone laughing. And what's interesting is I'm, I'm hearing a voice I've never heard before. At first I was listening and I could hear, you know, and it's so muffled and the sound is so bad, but I can still hear this voice that's a little bit higher and a voice I've never heard before. And then it occurred to me that that's Meg. I'm listening to this family preparing to sell the childhood home and just having this evening together and having drinks and talking about the wallpaper. But I'm hearing Meg talk about, about this, but it's still charged with the experience of selling a home and saying goodbye to a whole time. And I find it very moving to hear her since I'm so enmeshed, you know, intimately with the family that she left behind and the family that continued on. So you're letting me listen to something very casual but also something that's just so as profound capture of a moment in time, which is this evening in the life of a family. And I'm not a part of that, but I'm a part of this family in the future in the way it is now. But I, I feel very sad. Um, no, I mean, I don't know what I mean. I guess it's just... Uh, you know, it's easy in the busy day-to-day and having these three kids and the two kids, right? Meg's the first mother and I'm the second mother and life is so busy and it's easy to forget that all we have, like there's no certainty and we only have this moment in time and whoever would have imagined listening to this. And um, it's easy to lose sight of just how precious life is and um i i don't know what i'm saying i just find it very emotional no but i don't think you should be sad christian because don't you think this is like the image on the old pot of gold chocolate box the mise en abime i don't know what you call it in english that my dad used to give out every christmas um the pot of gold chocolates had a picture of a woman holding a pot of gold chocolates box which had a picture of a woman holding a pot of gold chocolate box etc like those multiplying mirrors and here we are having a moment of recording exactly the same listening to that recording from 14 years ago 15 years ago and this moment is just as real and just as significant as that and you can see into the future backwards so and what I mean is that two people in this cassette that we're listening to have died since. So that's my father and my sister. Uh, neither of them, they were just preceding the moment when one of them discovered she had cancer and the other one discovered he had Alzheimer's disease. And they carried those stories through each of them until each of them died. And it's just very interesting to 
be in both places at the same time. And the same thing for my sister's illness. It's the kind of thing you you only imagine in a very dramatically sad story that doesn't happen to you. It happens always to somebody else in the story. And then it happens to you in real life. And you you go through it. You just live through it in its own present. And you get to the end of it. And she did die. But there's something very peaceful about it. And it just so happens that Meg and my father are buried very close together in the graveyard in Hansport. So actually living literally in town, I often go and visit them on a whim. I never go in any kind of a ceremonial or sanctimonious fashion. I just drop in on them and I throw snowballs at them if it's winter and I make snow angels and I take flowers and I, and I, or maybe I say something to them and I never stay very long. I just go and check in and check out and it's all there, all these stories and the way that you can go back and forth and you're still just in the present and you're still just alive on a lovely day. It's so true what Libby says. Our memories remain with us. Occasional companions we visit or sometimes drop by unannounced. How we live every day is what counts. Every moment is significant. The ones gone by and the ones we live now, where we forge new love and memories. This is a wedding photo. It's the day you two got married. But we all got married. I know. Do you you even remember that? No. Yeah. Do you guys remember seeing your vows? No, No. I don't remember that at all. What? I said? I said said vows. vows. Yeah. We all had family wedding vows. And I remember Granny stood up and welcomed us as our, this new version of the family. After Andy and I got married... I remember Jill telling me that her whole family, they were so moved that the kids weren't in a pew way at the back or somewhere, but they were right up front with us and that they were very involved in the vows. It was uh, just a a beautiful day. And um, it, it hasn't all been easy. I mean, we've had to make space for each other. And... These days, you know, realizing that my sister's an outlaw, just how much they accept me, and my own understanding, the lovely spirit of who Meg Circum was, it's helped me be a better mother to these children. It's all taught me that family is something that you create. And the relationship I have with Meg I really believe in large part it's due to the three sisters making that space for me. And me finally really seeing that space and moving into it. It allows me to integrate Meg into my life and gently into the backdrop of our family life.
Christy Ann Conlon. That doc was produced by Christy Ann with Kent Hoffman. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe. You can see photos of Christy Ann, along with Andy, Angus, Silas, and Milo on our website. There, you can also see the photo of Meg that the family was talking about earlier in the episode. The one of her before motherhood and before cancer in all her tree-planting glory. That's all at cbc.ca slash docproject. Christy Ann and Meg have something else in common. Meg was also a professional writer. She published one book of short fiction, and her work was featured in a number of anthologies. And there is also a creative writing scholarship in her name, the Meg Circum Memorial Scholarship at Vanier College in Montreal, where she taught. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Sherry Okeke, Tanera McLean, Allison Cook, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer, and our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.